0: Who had died was being carried out to the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the bier and the bier stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole area of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our Old Testament lesson, 1 Kings 17, 17 17-24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And the illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son." And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him up from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to the mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man from God. And this, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so um, these, uh, these readings are not just a confrontation um, with death, but um, with with pretty catastrophic death. Tell me about the the situation kind of at at large as a a widow loses her only son. I mean, you can even go financially. Yeah, she had no one to provide for, so she's about to become homeless. Um, But just even today, how'd that go? All right, this is, this is her family. Like, we're, we're not just sort of talking about it in terms of potential resources gained or lost. We're talking about family. And in all of it, um, the scriptures are honest. This is sort of the age-old question in religion, any religion, right? Why is there this kind of stuff if there's a God who loves us? This is, huh? Well, because they're sin, but that doesn't comfort anybody, right? Like, Sure. What else do you guys think about this? I think it's really sometimes forgive that if breaks God's hard to go. Every single time someone dies, the grief of the widow pales in compares That's easy to say. It's really hard to think. Um and this is actually I I mean just <sighs> That's true. Because it's actually really easy to say we're more compassionate than God, right? Like, that's, that's my favorite thing to do, is say I'm much more loving than God is. Uh, we don't just do it in terms of, of um, death, but even in terms of sin. Like, God, it doesn't bother me that they're doing this, so clearly I love them more than you do. They're my family, and it doesn't bother me that they're living together, and it doesn't bother me that... Um, and then pick. Um, clearly, I, I love more than you. Or... You know, God. If I was running the show, there wouldn't be any widows. Clearly, I'm more compassionate than you are. It, it's really easy to start to frame this thing, um, but it's it's weird because as as much as we are quick to to rush to this, um, why do we do these like celebration of life things that that so many people like to do? Why why do we say why do we treat death like it's the solution to our problems? Huh? If I had a dollar, for every time somebody told me at a visitation, at least they're not hurting anymore. My point. My point. We do this. It's, it's an awkward duality that we don't ever really want to confront. This is a lesson that lets us do that. And this is, this is why I think it's, it's so valuable, because it is so jarring to to see this. Um, Even Elijah's own words um, are an attack on the Lord for this thing. Oh Lord, why have you done this thing? I think he's wrong. I think he's just hurting and he's mad. And he's taking it to the one place who there might actually be a source of help for, which is good. But we do this thing though, don't we? We, we? we treat death as if it's the solution to our problems and yet at the same time, we, you know, we have celebrations of life as if the, the best thing in the world that could happen is that we die. But at the same time, we have not only countless amounts of medicine to do these things and we, we, we tell ourselves we're more compassionate than God is because we sure wouldn't allow this thing in the first place. So which is it? Let's use the scriptures. That's, that's maybe the best way to go. Um... Ezekiel 33 tells us straight up how God feels about this thing. He says, I have no desire in the death of the wicked, but that they should turn from their ways and live. Does God want anyone to die? No. Even the wicked, the enemies, those who war against him, those who would attack his people, does he want them to die? Yeah, repent and live. Live, don't die. You got something? I see your brain moving. Okay. Um, Go to the Garden of Eden. There's one thing in the whole wide world that could be dangerous. God says, hey, since this will be the solution to all of your problems, please, by all means, eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. No? Does God want there to be death? Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life everlasting through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Does God will death? No. Death is always talked about in the scriptures as the enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 says, um, O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The enemy of sin is the law. But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord who has given us the victory. Death is always talked about as the enemy. The last great enemy to be destroyed is death. Over and over again. how does death's origin show that it's just not going to be our friend? What, what happened so that death would pop up? You, you got it right away. Sin. Good. Let's hang on to that. Because there is God sending something to die in there. Hang on to that one. Just keep it in your back pocket for a little bit. Um, does God intend people to die? Like when he made us, were we supposed to die? When we decided to start killing each other and ourselves, what did he do about it? He Put other stuff in the way. So when Adam and Eve, who were supposed to die in the garden, did they die right away? No. Instead, God killed animals and covered their shame that they could Live. Instead of your death, there is, he sacrificed his son. Death is not the will of God, so much so that he has to conquer it. He'll do it by any means that he has to do, because his will for you is life. That means that when we approach texts like these, we don't need to tell the lies that we tell, the cliches that we speak, um, because... We can confront this and speak about it the same way God speaks about it. It is bad. Death is the enemy. It is not okay ever that someone dies. If it was ever okay that somebody died, Jesus wouldn't have died to save them. Name one time it's been okay. Right. Um... I'll tell you two things. One, Paul himself speaks this way. Um, where does he say this? Uh, let's go Philipp- Is it Philippians? Yeah, Philippians 1, 21 to th- 23, I think. Because the scriptures do speak this way about it. Philippians 1, uh, 21 to 23. Yeah. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Uh, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ, Because of my coming to you again. Uh, That right there is is how we we answer that. With with a twofold thing. One, we can say, death is the enemy, but I have the victory. It is one thing to say, I don't want to die, but I do want to go to heaven. You're allowed to to kind of hold in distinction um, the victory over the enemy and the enemy himself. And so do we fear death? No. We don't. Like, I'm ready to go because I know that 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 enemy has already been defeated. I would rather be with Christ than be without him. And that's how Paul talks. He doesn't say, I would rather die. He says, I would rather be with Christ. To die is gain. In other words, the victory is the part that he's holding on to. Um, When we we start to to mush the death and the salvation together, um, we paint a very different picture of our religion than God would paint. Um, and truthfully, this is the birth of one of the first uh, major heresies in the church called Gnosticism. The idea that the body is bad and the soul is good. And so the best thing in the whole wide world that can happen is that we can get rid of this stupid body and let our souls be with Jesus. For one, um, it, it really denies the resurrection, just completely. That God actually wants you to live so firmly that he will raise up your body to be new and perfect. Perfect. That God so much wants you to live that um, God in his mercy would actually take on flesh. God was not a spirit who walked with me and talked with me. He was a crucified savior. Um, And so we want to hold this thing that I want to be with Jesus. Now, where did my Jesus go? Through death and back out again. So bring me through too. We hold that distinction. But even as we wrestle with this, and so I can say it would be better for me to be with Jesus right now. I would actually rather skip the whole death thing. So as we close out the Bible, we say something even um, you know, more desperate. Come, Lord Jesus. Don't let me die. Just let me skip that whole part. Um, Good. Mm-hmm. you got to remember you had life and Jesus first. Right. And then death. So it isn't like Jesus was, his death was a cure for uh, an afterthought. No. He was already there. Death was something that came off with sin. Right. Death came in through sin. So I know it's no friend of mine because sin hurts. Um But more, just look to how it was supposed to be when God made us and called us very good. We had bodies, not soul. I'm not just souls. Um, we would live, and we were. That was actually the great joy of the garden: is, is communion with Christ. Good. Um, so when we talk about this, though, the the real question is is still the time. Because ultimately, the, the real thing that we have issue with is not the victory over death. Because like, I, I want to say that um, there will be no one left behind for me to be hurt after I'm gone. And I will go in my sleep and I will not hurt. But this isn't those stories. Because that's the kind of death that we talk about. Like, God, just let me die instantly. God, you know, let let uh, my, my children be old enough to, to have such perfect lives that they won't be touched by it as if that were somehow possible. Um, God, you know... Let, and I, I, it's my selfish prayer, but I, it, and it sounds horrible, but I say, God, uh, let me go after my wife because I don't want her to have to figure out how to do this thing without me. Um, we, we talk about this as we can somehow take the sting out of death if we just find the right way to go. The sting of death is sin. No. It's, as long as there's sin, that's not going to work. And the scriptures themselves are a confrontation with the fact that not everybody gets those, and in fact, most people don't. Who dies? And who's left? In both of these readings. The mom buries her kid after losing her husband. Like, try and find me a more painful situation. And, and yeah, once you throw in the times to it too, it adds just a whole other level of, of um, complexity. I guarantee you though, the, the first thing on the widow's mind is not how am I going to pay for bread in six months. But, um, I mean, we can think about it being outside the bubble. But, uh, I mean, even the finances, because I always ran to the finances and said, oh, she's destitute now. I mean, not now, because all the community is right there. And not now, because if you've ever been to a Jewish funeral, there's more food even than a Lutheran one. Um, I'm serious, we sit Shiva. Um, For like days and days and days, people bring us food. Um, And all we're supposed to do is hang out with them and eat. Um, It's it's, 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 it's a comfort. Um, they're good at this, um, and there's honestly something that Christians should learn from it. Um, it's Six months, yeah, but six months is not on her mind right now. Um, I see this thing in the 21st century, um, in the middle of third wave, third wave of feminism, that, that um, even you know, it, with women who are perfectly capable of providing for themselves, in a community that is perfectly accepting of this, this, this thing, you're allowed to hurt if you lose your husband and then your only son. Yeah. Good. I, I tell you the truth, because we're 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 getting our legs under this, and so the week that, that somebody loses somebody, everybody brings a casserole, and that's good. Don't. But you really want to do something? Go see them in a month. I'm serious. Put it in your calendar. Go see them on the, their birthday, or their anniversary. Make a phone call. Um, bring casserole then. There's, there's something ongoing about this. But, but the real question that you ask me, is, and the one that I definitely don't want to skip over is, um, that, that question when you're laying in the, the nursing home and you feel you know, destitute, you feel like a burden on everyone around you, and you're just, why am I still here? I could be with Jesus, Why am I still here? And this is Paul's actually exact same thing, only he doesn't consider himself any better than somebody who's just receiving. Um, And and there's something great to be learned from this. I'm going to read you the verse uh, one more time in Philippians 1, uh, picking up around 22. Um, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me, yet that which I choose I shall not tell. Um, I am hard-pressed between these two. My desire is to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Why are you here right now? Huh? Yeah, for your neighbor. For your neighbor. I mean, really. You're, you're here for two things. One, to be called into faith, and then two, to, to love your neighbor. So when we talk about vocation, um, we recognize something. Uh, two things that, that I, I kind of want to hit at because I stole it from pastors who are smarter than me. Um, first, is there any vocation that is entirely self-serving, exists inside of a bubble, The most demonic of vocations try to. All the best vocations involve other people. Name me one vocation that involves absolutely no other neighbor. I'll name one for you and I'll tell you why it's evil. Monk. Who is a monk supposed to interact with? Just with God. Some even take vows of silence. You don't work inside of your community. Um, at least at the time of the Reformation, especially this was true. You, you prayed to add to the treasury of merit. Um, you didn't serve your neighbor. You served God. But what does God need from me? What does my neighbor need from me? Depending on the neighbor, different stuff. Um, Luther took issues with the monastery. Not that it was bad to pray. Not that it was bad to, to be Christian. Not that it was even bad to devote your life to, to, um, to holy things. But he recognized something, that God had stuck us here together, that we might serve one another. And so, when we, when we turn our backs on our neighbor we end up ultimately separating ourselves from God. Christianity is one religion that does not exist in a vacuum. And so many of the other religions, they do like spirit quests, or they do, you know, private meditation. Go off in your own head, go off in your own heart, go off in the middle of the wilderness, and really find God one-on-one. And Christians have always been the opposite of that, always. Where we have said, no, God calls, gathers enlighten, sanctifies, and keep. We've always been a communal religion where God would gather us together, that together we would be the body of Christ and individually members of it. We would always be united, not just to God, but also to each other, so that when we deal with things in terms of vocation, there is both a hearer and a preacher. There is a parent and a child. There is a government and a citizen. When we pair up vocations, they're always in partners. And so, if you're still here, it's because God has given you people. Even if you don't necessarily feel like it, and even if you don't necessarily appreciate it God is giving you those people now the real question is is there value on the receiving end because that's the part that everybody gets backwards we always say you know it's the more godly vocation to be a pastor than a congregational member no first of all how do you get godly you receive God so are you more baptized than me or am I more baptized than you no is God more pleased with me or is God more pleased with you no God is pleased with that perfect work of his son that has named me holy and named you holy as well. That that united together, we would be joined in his holiness. Is it more godly to be a parent or a child? But Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Who's doing more work, the parents or the infants? What is a better Christian witness? To lay in bed and receive or to give? How do you get to be a Christian? By giving to Jesus and caring for him and all of his needs? Oh, how did you come to Christ when you were perfectly capable of, you know, making sure to promise to pull your own weight or when you were absolutely nothing? When you were dead in Christ, he made you alive. This is a better Christian witness. And so to lay in the nursing home and feel utterly helpless is to be a Christian witness to your neighbor. It is to, to provide not only for you know, vocations for nurses to, to care, but it is to, to be a testament to what our faith is and how our faith can endure even down here. Because it's really easy to say, look how Christian I am, I have given to the poor. It is a whole lot harder to be Job. But Job is my witness, for he's the one who wrote my hymn, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. When we get to be united with each other, this is Paul's thing. Yeah, I would rather be with Christ. And if he wants me, he can come get me. That would be great. I am so certain of the victory that I will stare it right down. I don't want to die, but I do want to be with Jesus. And I know that death is just going to sleep for me, for death has already been destroyed. But I'm not done with you all yet. He's moving me around and he's giving me people. So all I'm going to love these people. That's what we say. You're not done with us yet. We're not done with you. You you get to to show me what it is to be Christian, that every time I might think too highly of myself, you can show me what a perfect witness looks like. Thanks be to God for you. You can can demonstrate to me the the joy of Christian life to simply receive from God, who is ever merciful and ever gracious. I can can get a perfect picture of what my religion is. What a joy. Um, We don't let go of these things. And so we can say, yeah, I'm, I'm... so certain of my victory that I'm ready to be with Christ in heaven. But we never talk about death as a friend, because Jesus doesn't talk about it as a friend either. When we sort of mold these two things together, we are really confusing to the rest of the world. We really are. So much so that, I mean, from the very beginning, um, people have, uh, have accused the ancient church of saying, well, if you really believe that baptism saves you, why don't you just hold the kids underwater when you baptize them? I mean, but it's, it's as blunt and, and as, as um, confrontational with what we say about baptism as you can get. And, and I actually really love the discussion. Um, because at first I actually didn't know how to answer it when I was a baby Christian. Because somebody brought it to me. And I said, well, that's bad. I don't know why it's bad, but I'm pretty sure it's bad. And so here's the thing. Does baptism save you? Is baptism a certain a certain hope of salvation? An ugly, 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 ugly question if some people abandon their baptism. So why not answer it? Oh, it's really simple. God thinks death is evil. God hates death so much that he died to destroy it. God has no desire that any should die. So much so that he becomes our death, that we would become his life. Baptism is not simply an act of death, but it is also an act of resurrection. To name it anything otherwise is to pollute it and pervert it. We don't hold the kids under the water because the whole point of baptism is not that they would just die, but that they would pass through death and unto life. Does God want that child dead? No. That's how come he gave them baptism in the first place. Don't you dare pervert that thing. I mean, really. This is how we, we, we confront these things. Does God will death? Elijah thinks so. I mean, because he's, he's genuinely troubled by it. We start flinging this thing around. Who did this? So here's the question. What does God do? What does God do? He sent his son to die for us. Will there be vocation in heaven? Or not heaven. Let's go to the last day because that's easier. Will there be vocation in the resurrection? Here's the real challenge. There'll be some. There won't be others, though, because I, I know there won't be marriage. I, I, I'm having a, an ongoing discussion with another clergy about whether or not there'll be pastors in heaven or in, in the resurrection. Huh? Give me some sinners in the resurrection, yeah. Um, um, but at the same time, will we be joined together? Will we speak comfort to one another? Even in the book of Revelation, who are these coming out of the great tribulation? Even there, the saints are comforting one another. There will be vocation. Right. No, there's more vocations now, because now, now this is the means where God would provide these things. That's what God gives us these vocations for this day. When those needs are no longer needed, then yeah, those vocations can pass away. So let's do marriage, because I know for a fact there won't be marriage in the resurrection by Jesus' own mouth. Why do we have marriage today? Two reasons. Three reasons. Three. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't need to give you a pamphlet. There, there ought to be families, and, and we know how this happens. Marriage is good for making more people. Good. Why else? To teach me about Christ and the church. To learn what sacrificial love is all about. To be an image of Christ in the church. And? You're allowed to say this one. Yeah. To be dealt with um, for, for worldly passions. To, to be a balm for worldly lust. Um, It's Paul's own language um, that that we would, in this world, apart from it, burn. Um, Marriage is given so that we would have a a healthy outlet for these desires. And in fact, when we turn our back on it, all sorts of perversions tend to bubble up to the surface. I mean, you see it in Christian denominations that have insisted upon chastity for their clergy. Um, Marriage is given for three good purposes. Now, will I have sinful desires in the resurrection? No. Will I need teaching about who Christ is compared to the church and the resurrection? Not in that sense. Will there need to be more babies? In there? No. So marriage can pass. Away. Now, will Lisa still be my very best friend? Of course. Will we hang out all the time? Yeah. What a joy. Will my kids want nothing to do with me in the resurrection? No. They will want to be around me not just because I provide for them their daily bread anymore but because of love. They don't stop being my kids. They stop needing things from me. They can receive it from Jesus. But at the same time, the saints speak comfort to one another in the book of Revelation. We're still supposed to be together. We are the multitude that no one can number from every tribe and nation. God doesn't just give us our own little private island and say build it how you want it. He puts us together. We get to sing hymns with our enemies. I mean, seriously. There is vocation there that would tie us to one another. Whenever we turn our backs on that, bad stuff starts happening. That was Luther's real issue with the monasteries is it had us turning our backs on each other. Kids turning their backs on their parents in need, turning their backs on their neighbors. Some of them turning their backs on their wives. Like they would leave their, their families to go and join the monastery. Right. Give me that verse. I can't remember the context. Well, it was just a. that would you give up your parents so that you could be. Okay, yeah. I can I can't. I don't remember it either, but I think I know what you're talking about. Right. So when Jesus confronts death, what does he think about it? Go to Luke. He has compassion. Is this okay with him, this situation? No. How do I know it's not okay? It says he has compassion, and not just sort of in a I would do it differently, but in a what? What does he do to this guy? He raises him from the dead. What does he do first? He touches the, the casket, the beer. What happens when you touch a casket by the old temple laws? You are unclean. How come? Because of the dead person inside. Because death is not good. Because death is in fact a pollution. Um, remember in the Old Testament, a lot of these things are acting out in a concrete way, that which happens spiritually in the New Testament. And so when we talk about these things that, that we would consider just so harsh and so unloving and a God who couldn't possibly understand, um, we, we, we either tend to say it's, it's, um, it's, it's just a, um, an uncivilized people enacting out their own desires and so they oppressed women and they found a, a way to do it. Or we say that you know, it's sort of um, a few wise people who did, had a whole bunch of dummies around them and they didn't know what else to do to make them not get sick. So they said, you know what, stop eating birds that eat dead things, it will make you sick. Also, don't eat pigs because you can't keep them clean. Kosher. And God did it. Just shut up, dummy. Don't eat the dead bird. Um, No. The, the, The reason that God would give these things is to paint a picture of the spiritual. And so we can call then death what it is. Right now, come to a visitation and watch somebody stare at a casket and tell me it doesn't ripple out, this uncleanness, this defilement, this wrongness. What the temple system would do then is say, look at how terrible this is. Let's go and find life after you're involved with it. Let's go and cleanse. Let's go and find a source of of, um, that which causes healing, restoration, hope. Point me to the resurrection, even back then. Jesus grabs hold of death itself and he becomes unclean. He takes everything that is wrong with this situation unto himself. He pulls the man out of the casket, and then he hops in it himself. He trades places with this man. And so, as he goes off to his own death, does he leave a widow behind? I'm one of those, by the way, who who thinks that uh, Joseph probably passed. I might be wrong. Stranger things have happened, but he just up and disappears very early on. Um, A lot of um, lore would say that Joseph was substantially older than Mary. He gives her to John. Precisely. Right, and he did. I mean, he said, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Um, Good. Now, yeah, after the resurrection. But when Jesus is dying on the cross, when, when Jesus is being buried, does he leave behind a widow who has lost her son? How then is Mary comforted? Because this is what I want to get to. Not just by John, by, by the resurrection. The resurrection is the thing that grants comfort. We don't, we don't talk about then comfort as a a removal of bad things, but a presence of good things. And we've kind of done that before, right? Comfort is not just having nothing bad happen to you. Um, comfort is, is having something good. And I can, I can prove it to you. If I put you in a comfortable room with a comfortable chair and no sound and no light and no people, will you be comfortable for long? For long. People go crazy in solitary confinement. Like, they they go utterly insane. Um, Sensory deprivation chambers, um, they're they're very comfortable for the right people for about 20-30 minutes, but oddly enough, if you use them for days on people, it's actually something that's called torture. Comfort is not just an absence of bad things. It's a presence of good. When God speaks comfort to people, it's not just that which he takes away is bad, it's that which good he sends. And so, when my children need comforting, the thing truly that comforts them is, yeah, me, or mom. Um, we do this too with each other then. Um, after the, the, the death, you can say, well, they're not hurting anymore. Um, there's no more bad. That's never actually made too many people feel all that much better. But what I have seen is when you show up with food and you start to tell stories and every once in a while there, you, there gets to be that comfort that, that is twofold. One, an absolute certainty of the resurrection. And two, the presence of good that you start to slip into old stories and start smiling. It's the weirdest thing. You laugh in the face of death because you know that it's defeated. Death is bad. Nobody's happy. But we know the victory and we've got the comfort. This is how Christians deal with one another in the face of the last great enemy. John was given to comfort Mary, but ultimately, the thing that, that wiped away every last tear was the resurrection. This is how Christians deal with one another. Um, and, and this is important because it is, it's just so easy to fall into anything that we can do to, to fill the silence because we don't like silence. The um, Job's friends all did it to him too. He's sitting there in the pit and they're all trying to find excuses and make it better. This is a man thing to do, I've been told. That, that um, when, when my wife will come to me and tell me all the things that are wrong, my very first instinct is to do what? I gotta fix it. Well, just tell her she's an idiot because she's being an idiot. You were right, she is wrong. I'll, t- I'll tell you what to say so that you can win this fight. It's broken, let me buy you a new one. Sometimes... Sometimes the best thing in the world you can do is just sit with somebody and hold their hand. I'm, I'm dumb. I'm trying to learn that. But yeah, usually they, they just want somebody to listen to them. Sit with them. Hold their hand. Bring them food. That, this is the comfort that we have one another that is so potent that can exist in silence. I truly think that, that um, what Job needed more than somebody trying to figure out what he did wrong to upset God so that he could fix it was just somebody to sit with him while he lost everything and, and hold his hand for a little while. There, there is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing in this kind of uh, Christian companion um, that, that we can do this thing together. Um, that that in, with, with touch, with silence, it's not something we need to be so afraid of that we need to fill with something we stole from a Hallmark card that's not from the Bible and doesn't actually make anybody feel better. First, talk about the resurrection and just comfort. That's how Christians do this. Do you have questions, concerns? Have question. Yeah. Some did that, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not saying everybody in a monastery is, is worthy of hell. Um, some of them did service to their neighbor. Um, so, like, so copying scripture is a good thing. Um, but but uh, what? Right. So, so here's the thing, though. Um, even inside of this, you spoke about a vocation for a neighbor and not a vocation directly to God. Because, yeah, um, hand-copying Scripture before the printing press is a service to, to the neighbor. Um, saying that I can't work because I have to pray the seven hours of the day is a different thing. And we can do it right here, too, um, because it is actually my job to pray for you. Like, quite explicitly in my call documents, I'm supposed to pray for you. Now, at the same time, if uh, you, you call me and say, Pastor, I, I, uh, I, I'm going through a really rough time I could really use to talk or pastor I'm having surgery or you know what pastor I hear there's church on Sunday I'm like yeah I can't write a sermon uh gotta pray can't visit you gotta pray can't raise my kids gotta pray you see where it starts to turn in on itself this is a the, the place where the the monastery can become polluted there are even today this day monasteries that work in service to their neighbors and that's good It's good. We don't lock our church for that reason. We leave the cross on all the time that if anybody ever wants to come in here and pray, this is a house of prayer, and it should always be that. Oh, yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Pray if you need to. Prayer is a comfort. I mean, yeah, we've talked about this before. All all the ways that we turn God into our enemy if we need to pray or he won't work. Um, We're not going to do that. But, but we will say, yeah, prayer is always good. It is always good to take time out of your day to pray. It is always bad to turn your back on your neighbor, as if praying instead of this would, would somehow... It's like not taking your kids to the doctor because they're sick because you prayed for them. Do both. When your neighbor is concerned, needs help, pray for them and then help them both. It's not an either or. Um, And we we get this in the other side of the coin too. Um, Now, I don't know why, but all of a sudden we've turned our back on anybody. Every time there's a disaster and somebody says, you know, you're in my prayers. um, Everybody in the room gets really upset. Well, your thoughts and prayers don't fix anything. And you know what? Nobody's necessarily saying that. We're doing both. It's not all work or all prayer. It's always both. Anytime we say, you're right, I'll pray for you, but I won't help you. You're right, that's bad. But also at the same time, anytime you would say, because I've done this thing, I ought not pray, that's bad too. Our, our thoughts and prayers are with you, good, and, and also we'll care for you. We, we act like everybody who's ever typed that into Facebook has never given to charity. And that's, that's sinful. Um, that, that's wrong. Um, it, why would you set the two against each other? God doesn't. Yeah, good. Amen. Well, thank you all very much.